0: Words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, perfect and fallible words that reflect the Father's own nature and His will for us. Verse 10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish if your brother sins against you. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Please pray with me for God's blessing. Lord, we come before you. We come to a text that's difficult uh, in my puny uh, imagination, comprehension, in a multitude of ways. And I pray that you would help us today, not just to understand the, the procedure that is set down, not just to understand the confidence, but the reason why we ought to have such confidence, the underlying spiritual reality of such a procedure and method. I pray that you would, you would glorify yourself, God, that we would see Christ and him crucified, and that you might be our our all in all today. God, this can only happen by your spirit. It cannot happen by my words, and we pray that you would, you would help use foolish means to, to do amazing things for your people today, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we mentioned last week, and as we've already mentioned today, you can see a contrast between verses 10 through 14, and particularly verses 15 through 17 of our text today. Last week we we saw the great value that God and Jesus Christ and the angels of heaven put on every single one, even the most despised Christian who names the name of Christ. The most annoying brother or sister among us is highly valued in God's sight, and therefore our affections must be somehow by his spirit conformed to the will of God in that that we would value one another even as Christ values us. That is the affection that we are to cultivate in our hearts for seeking. And that's a, a powerful thing that convicts us of our sins, shows us the love of God. And when I come here today and I'm choosing my words carefully, we come to a procedure, a, a method. And in contrast, it can seem dull and lifeless in its wording. Right, I'm talking about the affections of the heart, the will of the Father to seek and save the lost. Now we come to something that is just procedural, that might remind us of a courtroom or something like that. But we have to keep in mind, in our American culture, we are so wrapped up and obsessed with the affections of the heart, with how we feel, with transcendent feeling, that sometimes we forget that God has means that He works through procedure, Through method, through simple things, things that are despised in the eyes of the world are used greatly by God. In fact, when we consider church discipline and pronouncing people as outside the covenant kingdom of God, and there's a method to that, it can seem so sterile that it can seem unloving to us. But we have to realize that God in His grace uses foolish means to our own human minds to work great things. And God in His grace and love has prescribed a method by which we can go and save sinners. If we see this as a method that God promises to use in His own will and way to save sinners, I think that it would fix this sterile and dull understanding that we have in our mind And that's what I want us to focus our minds on here today. I'm going to attempt to preach this passage so that we would see the spiritual reality and weight behind the passage, behind the the procedure that there is true spirit and glory in it. And so we see here, the central idea is that Jesus prescribes a procedure of seeking those who have gone astray and gives us assurance of the validity of that procedure. Maybe I could say that one more time so we get it. Jesus does here prescribe a a procedure, even much like we would see a procedure in the old covenant given to new covenant people. And he gives us assurance that it will be, it's a valid process that God uses in a spiritual way. Okay? And I want us to do that, and you can probably guess through two points today. First, that we would carefully, okay, that we would carefully seek to restore. Sinners. And second, that we would have confidence in judgment. So you can see the alliteration there, that we would seek with care and confidence. And first, I want us to see in verses 15 through 17 in particular, that this passage, as we look at the procedure, should communicate something to us. And that is that we should seek little ones with care, with diligence, with carefulness, right? It's what a procedure is. It's to maintain carefulness in an end goal. Okay. Now, the reason why we must be careful, why we must adhere to a procedure, although Christ has said to do it, and so that should be enough for us, but there's underlying reasons as well. We should seek with care because the goal of the process is gospel restoration to full fellowship with God's people. And this is a spiritual thing we should realize. This isn't cold. This isn't mechanical. Spiritual gospel restoration is what we're aiming at in this process. And I want us to point out, as we kind of step back and look at the whole chapter, that the, chapter of cha- the whole chapter of 18 is focused on how we deal with one another and the tone that Jesus Christ has throughout it is grave. Okay? So, when me and Joey prepare a message. As any preacher prepares a message, we not only should be focused on the words that we're going to speak from the pulpit, but there is a necessary tone that the Scripture has that ought to be um, in confluence with that. Congruous with that. And if we could hear Jesus Christ speaking, we could almost hear Him just from the words read on the page. His tone is extremely grave. There is gravity and weight to what Jesus Christ says. For example... In verses one through four, Jesus warns us with the gravity, the danger of spiritual pride. If unrepented of, if we do not become like little children and put ourselves in the lowest positions and see everybody is higher than us, then we're in danger of not even inheriting the kingdom of God. Verses 5-9, through nine, we see the danger, the gravity of stumbling blocks. Being a stumbling block to others and allowing stumbling blocks to so enter my life that I become a stumbling block to others. And then last week, we saw the gravity, I hope, of seeking sinners. And especially, the warning of the danger of in our hearts refusing to seek after sinners because it's too difficult and too hard even though we'll seek after our own money and the own, our are one sheep that goes astray on the hill. We refuse to seek after God's people. And there is a gravity that is seen here. There's an affection that we saw has to be renewed that we would value God's people in such a way that we would love them. In fact, I would say, as Paul says in Romans 12:10, our goal is to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. This refusal is contrary to God. And the same trajectory is here in our text. We seek gospel restoration and there's gravity attached to this. This must be executed with extreme care and supreme care because it is the way of gospel restoration. And we're just going to go through the process here. I want us to see that in this process, there's gravity because of what it's aimed at. First, we see in verse 15, private restoration. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, as we go through this, and as I've read it many times, I think that probably your interpretive problem is mine. I'm so focused on the end result of excommunication that sometimes I don't see the beauty and the glory of what's happening in the process leading up to that and hopefully not leading to that. It's easy for us to focus on the punishment that we see in excommunication, but I want us to see here the spiritual means of restoration that should imbue everything that we do and color everything we do in this first step. And what we see here is that we go to our brother and sister humbly and privately. We see privately in the text, don't we? we? We go to our brother and sister and you and him alone, or you and her alone, sit down and we discuss. And this is also supposed to be a humble conversation. As Chrysostom, a preacher in the 3rd century, as I read this text, he said something like this. We're not going there to charge him. We're not going to get payment from him. We're going to simply tell him the fault that we have. But I want us to also notice another word in our text. Not just alone, but go. Go. We're called by Jesus Christ not to do what we are tempted to do. We're not called to just pray that the brother would come to his own senses. Aren't you tempted to do that when you know there's somebody that you need to confront about something? You see the trajectory of their life going not towards God, but towards hell and damnation. And we think sometimes in our sinful hearts, I'm just going to pray about it. But secretly, I say, I'm never going to go. Never going to go. We must go to our brother. We're not just to pray. We're certainly not to gossip. We're not to go to other people in the church and say, I can't believe that that person... Is doing this or that. Because again, we're refusing to see the spirituality of what Jesus Christ is calling us to. We're seeing that person in a merely human way. And so we're gossiping like we can't believe a sinner would do this. Obviously, we don't know our own heart when we do that. But not only that, we're not to deflect. What do I mean by that? If we're to go to our brother or sister alone, it implies that I am not to go to the elders of the church and say, hey, there's a real problem that you need to deal with over here. Or to go to somebody else in the church and say, hey, there's, a, there's an issue that you need to deal with. I'm not going to do it, obviously. That's not what's being called upon here. Jesus Christ speaks to all of the disciples in the church and says that we must go to our brother. We must go to them. We must seek them. And we are seeking, again, to emphasize the point, a spiritual change that nothing that we could do ever could accomplish. Much like preaching the gospel, as I sit in my office every week before I come into this pulpit, I am overwhelmed by the fact every week that I am not able to change any human heart. I am not able to make you think that God is more glorious than you think He is now. I can say the words that I've written and I can hope, but I must trust in God to do it. And in the same way, when we go to our brother and sister, we can't have a rationalistic thought process that I need to explain it well enough so that their rationale will get it and come to us. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are confronting them. As ACBC has taught us, that we're seeking change through confrontation coupled With concern. The the goal is that God would so work through us going, the foolish instrument of us going and sharing the Gospel, that He would change that heart and bring him back to himself or herself. That is the primary goal we realize, right? We're seeking Gospel restoration in a sinner. Therefore, we go to Him privately, trusting God with what will happen there. But, there's a secondary goal here. We're going to them. And as I already quoted from Chrysostom, we're not to charge. We're not to hammer it into their heart. We're not trying to make them feel bad necessarily. We're to tell them their fault. And so the secondary goal here is not just change, but to understand. To understand what this person is doing and what we're thinking. Okay, We're to go to them humbly and say, brother, I perceive... That there is a pattern of sin in your life that is contrary to the doctrines that we see in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Brother, I'm here to understand you. Please, tell me if I'm wrong. Right? We're not presuming that I'm infallibly right about this situation. Now, we could be. We're going there to understand. And secondly, we're going there not just to understand, but we're to convince the person. If it happens to be that our understanding, our perception of this particular sin in this brother or sister's life is right. We are to use the Scripture to the best of our ability to convince them that this is against what the Bible says. This is sin against God and the Holy Spirit who has saved you. We're to convince them. This is the trajectory of what we're aiming at, that through this understanding and convincing, this humble coming to this person alone, that God would use it as a spiritual means to to bring this sinner to life. Uh, I'm going to read to you an Old Testament passage. I'm just reading one verse. Leviticus 19.7. It might seem like a strange passage to get some gospel truth from, but it's certainly there. Leviticus 19.7 says this very beautifully. And I said 19.7. I mean 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But what's the opposite of hating your brother in your heart? But you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. Right? Leviticus is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying there. We are called not to hate our brother, not to despise them, not to value them high enough that we will refuse to go after them. Rather, we are to go to them and reason frankly with our brother in our heart. We are seeking repentance and the wonderful words of our Savior here. If He listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, He listens to you. It doesn't mean that He hears the the vibrations of the, the air around Him coming from His vocal cords, entering His ears, right? What it means is He listens to you He agrees and He repents of his sin. If He's listened to you, notice that language. You've gained your brother. What a wonderful spiritual truth that is that we should aim at and go for. No wonder there's so much joy put in the paragraph previous when the sheep is found. When the lost brother is saved. This is true spiritual reconciliation. And to beat a dead horse, I use that phrase far too often. But, we're gaining our brother in this. We're gaining our brother. Gospel restoration has happened and we can rejoice. Now, think with me here. If we've gained our brother, I want us to think about what that doesn't mean. (laughs) What that doesn't mean is we're not offering that you can be in good relationship with me if you repent sufficient to what I think you should repent of. You don't owe me penance. You don't owe me payment for the sin that you committed against me. Rather, the free gospel is offered just like it is in the pulpit, just like when you share it with an unconverted sinner. You don't owe me anything, brother. You agree that you've sinned and you repent and you want to, to put this into death. Come back. You're received fully and freely by the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're received fully and freely by me. But if he doesn't repent, unfortunately, Christ has given us a second step in this procedure. And it's what I've put, maybe not helpfully, a semi-private restoration. We, we've seen a private restoration and we see that after this brother or sister doesn't repent, Christ wants us to bring a couple more people, one or two other brothers or sisters with us that we can open it up a little more public for the means of their spiritual conversion. Now, what I want to bring to us here is we can be tempted, can't we, to not go to our brother privately and just to pray, but if we do that, By God's grace, we can further be tempted. I've done my part. I've done my part. I did did what I was commanded to do to some degree, and I'm not going to go any further. It was too hard. It was too difficult. I want you to imagine with me a doctor. A physician of the body rather than a physician of the soul. And let's say you, you went to this doctor, an oncologist, and you knew that you had a lump that you had found. And the doctor examines you and says... You know, this is a really difficult case. It's not going to be an easy process where I can just excise the tumor in one go. We've discovered it's much more severe and penetrative into your own body, and it's going to require much more diligent work. What a terrible doctor to say, yeah, it's too hard for me, and I'm just going to step back from that. Rather, what does a good physician do? He says, we're going to double our efforts. I'm going to call other physicians. I'm going to get a board of doctors together to see how I can best treat this case. Brothers and sisters, it is the same with us. If the unrepentant shows himself unrepentant, we put greater effort into it, not less. We call other brothers and sisters to preach the Gospel. And I think it's helpful for us to just think about this in our own lives. How many times did you hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ before you saw the beauty before you turned your heart, before He turned your heart by grace. But God sought after you all your life through creation and through the Word preached. How many times did Jesus Christ preach the same gospel to the same people over and over? How many times did He call His own disciples back from going astray? Countless, innumerable. We're to put greater effort into our brothers and sisters at this point. Now... Just as there is a goal in the first, a secondary goal, right, that we we would understand and convince. Here, the secondary goal is different. Notice the language in verse 16, that every charge may be established. The goal here is to establish what the first meeting supposedly established. You had found your brother or sister perhaps in sin against the Scripture, walking in a way contrary to the Bible. And here, these witnesses gathered together have the function of establishing that. Is what happened by your witness true? You might have been wrong. You might have read the Scripture wrongly and tried to bind your brother or sister's conscience where the Scripture doesn't clearly do so. And these witnesses gathered together might establish the fact that you were wrong in that. This brother doesn't need repentance. But, they also are to establish if you're right. That this brother said what was true, and we're here to say that that is, in fact, the case. And these witnesses, although it's not stated clearly here, they're to try to further convince this brother or sister. The goal, again, being gospel restoration, the gospel being preached not comes from one mouth, but it comes from three. And this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 19, and verse 15, the Old Testament, where there must be two or three witnesses. For a legal case. A person must not be put to death on the witness of one witness. Here, Jesus has this procedure that further evidence would be established. The gospel would be freely offered. And if it's refused, evidence is taken to the church. And I want us to notice this here. And I, I tried to inflect this when we read through the passage. The gospel's offered, the church then hears the case publicly. It's opened up for everyone to hear the the gory details of unrepentant sinners shared with the people of God. And again, the goal is that the church together would witness to this person to come back from your sin. And this is so high to Jesus, so majestic to Jesus, the witness of the church. I want us to, to hear His language. He says, if He refuses even to listen to the church to listen to God's people who have gathered together, refuses to listen to the bride of Christ, corporately speaking. This is great sin. The Gospel is offered over and over and over again. And each of these steps can be repeated multiple times so that the sinner would be restored. But I want us to notice as well that the process is for restoration, but the end of it is also for restoration, brothers. Excommunication. It's not an end all, be all step. Excommunication is meant to reconcile the sinners. We cut them off from table fellowship. They can no longer come to the Lord's Supper and experience the grace offered there and seen there. They're cut off from normal fellowship as we are to participate in that, not, not pretending that everything's okay. We can't do that because it's not just to be mean. Not just to follow a rigid procedural step. The purpose is that God would use it spiritually to call back a sinner to Himself. That He'd come to His senses and be ashamed of what He has done and be restored. We must be careful in this process. We must do it diligently and be careful because it's God's mean of, means of restoring sinners to Himself. We cannot forsake this. But we must also take care for another reason. Not just the process, but we must take care because of the gravity of excommunication. The gravity of it. As we consider the spiritual means that God worked through, I further want to impress upon our conscience the care and the diligence that we have to take because of the the gravity of excommunication. And I want us to see that first it's grave because of the function of excommunication. Now, if we flip back to Matthew 16, I want us to notice that Jesus is talking about the same thing in a different venue. After Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he tells them, tells him in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he defines what those keys do. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In chapter 18, we, have, we don't have the language of the keys, but we have the same function being mentioned. The binding and loosing of things. That is, keys are a symbol of authority given to the church. A key is a symbol of authority, as you've heard before, stay with me, to unlock and to lock. I have a key of my home, and every night, although I don't have an actual key, I usually use a deadbolt... But I show authority over my house by locking it at nighttime to keep people from coming in unwanted. And I have authority over my house that I have an actual key that I unlock at any time I want to welcome somebody in or if I want to go in myself. And this loosing and unloosing, we should see the gravity of it because what we are doing here is shutting out, locking the door of this person that's been excommunicated from the covenant community of the people of God. Locking them out of that, um, We're removing them from the covenant community. And I want us to notice Jesus Christ's particular language here. Notice what He says in verse 17. If He refuses to listen even to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, He's speaking to only Jewish people at this time that knew the synagogue, knew temple worship, And in their minds, to be a Gentile was to be what? To be unclean. Unable to come into God's holy worship in His temple. Unable to participate in these things. The covenant community was restricted to a particular group of people at that time. And to be brought in, you really had to become a Jew. So, we see the particular language there, don't we? This person is to beat you as an unclean member. Unable to worship God in his house. And second, a tax collector. In the Jewish mind, this person is the the worst example of a Gentile. It's somebody that is an enemy of God. Working for God's enemies of God's people. um, Be like, no, somebody working for a foreign government, we might say, nowadays. He's a traitor. He's found out he's giving secrets of the American government away to a, a, a hostile force. ISIS or something. That's what a tax collector looked like. And so it's removal from the midst of the covenant people of God. But I want us to see even clearer language in 1 Corinthians 5. Please turn with me there. Now, 1 Corinthians 5, if you have a a tab or a bookmark or something, just put it there because we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 5 a number of times and I don't want to uh, weary you with that. 1 Corinthians 5, and again... We're looking at the gravity of excommunication. And because excommunication is so grave, we have to take care. Notice it's grave because the keys of the kingdom remove somebody from covenant community. Notice 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verse 2. This man that had his father's wife and committed this sin unrepentantly. Notice what Paul says. And you are arrogant speaking to the church as a whole. Ought you not rather to mourn? Notice, let him who has done this be removed. Removed from among you. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The language of removal. Deliver him to Satan. Notice as well. Uh, verse 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This man is leaven in your midst. Therefore, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then notice verses 12 and 13. The strongest language here. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Okay, And the answer is Nothing. It is those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay? It's grave because it's removal of a person from the covenant community of the people of God. But I want us to realize a second. Subsection of that. It's grave not just because of the function of the keys to remove, it's grave because of what removal represents. That is, that there is a spiritual reality behind removal that is deeper than what we might consider. To state that another way, when we remove somebody from covenant community, we're not removing them from the roles of a club somewhere. Okay? It's not like the Moose's Lodge or some other club that you can just have your name removed from the list and that's the end of it. It has no real meaning except for in the, the legal documents of that particular organization. Rather, if we notice, and you're still in 1 Corinthians 5.13, we see the gravity of the spiritual reality by the word purge this evil person from among you. And the reason for that is because of what Paul's quoting. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament here. And any person that heard this would have immediately brought not to one text, but to seven in the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm just going to have you turn to a a couple. I won't read all seven. Um, I'm just going to read three. So three witnesses, we can establish this. Turn to chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. We see church discipline is grave. Because it represents a spiritual reality and that spiritual reality is spiritual death. Spiritual death. Notice with me in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 5. This is a prophet, a false prophet among the people. And we see in verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way to become a stumbling block, we could say, in which the Lord your God has commanded you to walk. So, you shall purge the evil from your midst. How are they to purge it? Through the death penalty. The next text, both of them would be in Chapter 17. Chapter 17. And notice verse 7. Verse 7. This is another person who has committed idolatry. Paganism. worshipped something he shouldn't or she shouldn't worship. And verse 7 we see this. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. So afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And then, notice with me again in verse 12 of the same chapter. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. All people shall hear and feel and not act presumptuously. Again, and if you wanted to Have a note of the other texts we have, chapter 21, 21, 22, 21, and verses 22 and 24 of chapter 22 as well. But I want to impress upon our minds today that when Paul quotes the procedure that the the church in Corinth went through, the procedure ended in purging the evil person from among them. And Paul points back to the Old Testament procedure, doesn't he? He says, that was a shadow. They put that person to death in the Old Testament. And that's shadowing the spiritual reality of what takes place when somebody is excommunicated in the church. The covenant community of God is connected to Jesus Christ and we experience His life giving influence. When we look to the cross and we see that He is risen from the dead, we walk in those ways. But when somebody is excommunicated rightly from a church... They're cut off from the life-giving influence of Jesus Christ and they are abiding in death. We have to see that. The gravity of that. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be taken lightly. Outside the church is death and we should see what gravity there is in this process. What care must be taken if the end of it is death spiritually. And thirdly, it's grave Excommunication is great because it's your obligation. It's your obligation. It's not the elders' obligation primarily here, it's the obligation of every member of every New Testament church. It's your obligation to do these things. Now, certainly, elders lead in the process. They counsel through the process. They show what is sin clearly from Scripture from what is not. But we must be clear on this particular issue. The congregation in Matthew chapter 18 is the one who has authority. The church is told. If they don't listen to the church, then they are put to the side. But again, 1 Corinthians is clearer on this. You might be looking at Matthew chapter 18 and say, well, it could be the elders that actually excommunicate after the church has testified and so adhere to a more Presbyterian model. But I want us to see that in 1 Corinthians, it is the church that executes this authority and that is seen absolutely clearly. Verses 4 and 5 of, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 say this. And notice the similarity in language between Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, isn't it? When you're gathered together in My name. This says the same thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and My Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. That is, when He's present with you. He, he's, he's among us. He's with us. You are to deliver this man... To Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians not to the elders of the Corinthian church. In fact, some scholars say that there weren't elders of this church at this particular time. He's writing to the whole congregation. It says, you're to do it. Notice there that Paul, the apostle that planted this church, he does not presume that he has the power to say, he's already delivered, don't worry about it. He tells them, you have to go through with this yourself. And that ought to add gravity to us brothers and sisters. And even in restoring this person, the authority lies in the congregation. I'm just going to read one more text to put this on your mind. It's not the elders responsibility, it's yours. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 7. It's probably this same man that's now repented. Notice the language of Paul. Now if anyone has caused pain he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Notice verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the what majority is enough. So you, that is the whole church, should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This punishment of excommunication is our obligation. It's the majority of the church Punishing, But when we welcome them in again, it is also by the authority of the church. It's grave. Excommunication is, gra- is grave because it's the function of the keys to shut people out. It represents spiritual death and it's our, every single one of our responsibility to do it. And therefore... Because we have to give such care, because gospel restoration is offered in the process, and spiritual death is represented in the punishment, brothers and sisters, I've arranged this, maybe foolishly, sermon this way, to say therefore we must give due process to the procedure that Jesus Christ has given us. If we recognize the weight of these things, how much more diligently should we make sure that we're adhering to the process that Jesus Christ Himself has given? If we don't adhere to it, I can have no confidence in myself that God's going to work through it. Just as if I got up here and didn't give a sermon but had some sort of puppet show, I'd have no confidence because God has not established that as a means in His Word. We must adhere to this. This text, I would tell you, as I've wrapped my mind around it, tried to this week, this is the closest thing we have to a legal code in the New Testament. The closest thing to we have a systematic and procedural language. Very reminiscent of Old Covenant language. And I want to further put that on your heart. We, we need to adhere to this system because it's, it's legal in its language. Notice the language in Matthew chapter 18 that's being used by our Savior. He uses language like there are charges. Charges. That's courtroom language, isn't it? These charges need to be established. Furthermore, there needs to be witnesses. Witnesses need to be acquired. And those witnesses are required, why? To offer evidence. To offer evidence. And all of this is is meant to emphasize the care that we should take. And it highlights the fact that we must follow this process very closely. And if we'll again look at Matthew 18... The actual process, following the legal language, we must do do certain things. We must aim for gospel restoration. We must do it in certain ways. That is first, if a brother or sister sins against you, this is talking about actual sin. Just as I can't bring somebody to court with hurt feelings or something that's not in the code or thinking that somebody's doing wrong, so you cannot do that in the church of God This is not based on emotions, thinking that somebody did something wrong against you. This is a violation of God's law, and it can clearly be pointed to in the Bible. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is transgression of the law. Sin is transgression of the law. And if I think my brother or sister has sinned, and I look at my Bible and I say, well, I can't really show that, then you can't go to them. This is legal, procedural. It must be actual, Sin, biblically defined and provable. Sin against... Okay, and and to to look at that word sin again, we we see it's sin against you. Okay? So we might be thinking in our minds that if somebody doesn't personally sin against me, then I can't go to them. Okay? So if they have a, a doctrinal error, let's say, they've denied the Trinity. I can't go to them because they didn't sin against me personally. I would say that we shouldn't read it with that kind of peculiarity. And the reason for that is manifold. First, because the word against is really not in more the ancient witnesses that we have. And we could list some of those. Some of the church fathers, when they quoted this text, they didn't have against quoted there. And perhaps more weighty than that, Luke 17, which is a parallel to this, says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Nothing against you there. So even if against you is meant in this text, we can look at other biblical witnesses and say that it's not necessary that it's a sin directly against me. Luke says, if he sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Okay? This must be actual sin. We must follow that procedure. I must be able to point to God's law and say, I can show you where you've sinned, brother. I can show the church where you've sinned. But again, looking at the legal language here, There's trusted witnesses that must be gathered. I say trusted, it says witnesses. I was in a a situation a number of years ago where the family that was bringing a charge against somebody else wanted to bring other members of the family to have the same charge. They couldn't find witnesses anywhere else, okay? But they wanted to bring other members of their family, which obviously agreed, to witness, and they thought they were fulfilling this part. But that's not the point of this. We're to bring trusted witnesses together. That is, we're to think about my brother hasn't repented of his sin. I need to gather witnesses. I need to look at men and women in the church that I know are trustworthy, right? And the Bible presumes there's such people in the church. I'll just read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? And the answer is no, there's not. There's no way that that's possible. There are wise people in the church, and we're to choose those people carefully. Because this person must be trusted by you. That when we go to our brother, they can point to the Scripture and say, brother... This is clear in the Scripture. You can't be doing this. You need to repent. But more than that, these people must be trusted by the entire congregation. They must be people of high standing. When they come up to this pulpit, hopefully we'll never have to do church discipline again, but when they come up here and they tell you what they saw and what they heard, everybody's response in their heart is, I believe that, brother. I believe him because I know, I know who he is. I know who he is and I know his integrity. Care must be taken here, brothers and sisters, because our goal is true reconciliation. Care must be taken because of the gravity of punishment. And all of that should culminate. My point that I'm trying to make, all of that gravity is supposed to culminate in a scrupulous attitude of how we go through this procedure. Scrupulous. Making sure we don't have any things that aren't crossed, any things that aren't dotted, that nobody can bring blame against the church in the procedure. And this should make us tremble, shouldn't it? And it does make us tremble, especially if it, it, it leaves theoretical thought and you actually have to engage in it. It makes you tremble because of the weight. And Christ wants us to tremble. He wants us to tremble for these brothers and sisters. But He doesn't leave us there. By God's grace, He also gives us confidence. And I've gone long. Um, he gives us confidence... And I'm going to leave this for next week because I have about a half a sermon left. Okay, I'm going to leave this for next week and I didn't plan on it. Uh, We must see in this text, brothers and sisters, that Christ has a means of saving sinners. He wants us to use these means. He wants us to develop an attitude of love for one another that we'd value to seek them, but we can't leave it there. And we can't let our American love for our own emotions take us away from the scrupulous nature of these procedures that Jesus Christ has given us. If we want to seek our brothers, we must love them immensely, but we must also be careful. I am a sinner, and if I go in my own ways to do my own things, I have no confidence that anything will be accomplished, but God gives us confidence. That he works through his word by his own will, his own grace and means. And that is wonderful news. Amen. I'm going to introduce us to the Lord's table here today.